This morning's text comes from the letter written to the church in Galatia, chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elemental principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, we've all seen them. Um, They make us laugh, cry, and quite frankly, a little bit uncomfortable, we've all seen those dreadfully awkward family photos, right? Um, There's something about us as human beings that as soon as we get in front of this, you know, this, this type of lens and we know we have any time to actually prepare and organize our loved ones in front of this lens, we just become crazy. I mean, we, we start doing all kinds of weird poses like, who, who says that that is a good way to kind of stand and carry forth your posture? Then, of course, there's clothing. We start organizing and getting super matchy. Like, where does one kid begin and the other one stop? Like, there's just this mesh of cats up on that screen. Then, of course, there's, there's this last one that I have no idea what's going on there. Like, there's this psycho kid in the background looking out the window. I mean, that, that's not okay. Like, and you know what I realized? I was looking through these, <laughs> these family photos, these awkward family photos, and I came to a realization that's even worse than the family photos themselves. I came to the realization that for someone somewhere, at that particular time, this was their picture of the picture-perfect family. Like, have you thought, I mean, like, how is that okay? Like, when do you, like, not just instantly hit delete or tear that picture up? Like, that is freaky. Just, like, kind of terrifies me when I just see this little girl in the back just ready to, I don't know, something back there in the back. But listen, the, the other thing, in the midst of all of this, you know, um, these awkward family photos, as we seek to somehow create the picture-perfect family, the reality is that no one's picture is perfect, is it? Everyone, no matter who you are, when it comes to our understanding of family, we've all got so much baggage, so much pain, so much hurt, especially like a day like today, Mother's Day. It's, it comes with some mixed emotions, doesn't it? In one sense, there's great celebration. There's honor for mothers and the amazing work they do and for those who have mothered us. And yet simultaneously, I know for many there's also the temptation to skip this day because of the pain that's associated with this day. Nobody's got this picture that's absolutely perfect when it comes to family. And when we think about family, whether it be memories or experiences, we come with pain, we come with hurt and embarrassment. True, some more than others, 
But no matter where you are, no matter what family you're a part of, we've all had that moment when you're kind of in the midst of family or you're witnessing the dynamics of another family and you, you easily think in the back of your mind, if you don't say it out loud, that, that's not the way it ought to be. That's not the way it ought to be. This is not the way it should be. Where does that come from? It's because every single one of us, as foggy as it may be, has an idea in the back of our minds of what the picture-perfect family looks like. What does it look like? And, and, and honestly, doesn't every single person in here long to be a part of that picture-perfect family? Like, where can I find my place there? And when we come to think about God, now, re regardless of where you're at this morning, maybe you're visiting and you're like, okay, I'm going to give church another try. I haven't been in a long time. Or maybe you call this place home. But if anybody, anybody who can organize the picture-perfect family, it, it's got to be God, right? With his unfathomable power and his endless benevolence. If there's anyone who can organize the picture-perfect family, it's got to be God. Which raises another question. How does God go about making picture perfect. How does God make picture per perfect? If he's going to organize his family, if he has endless power and endless benevolence, how does he do it? We've already heard it talked about this morning. We heard it in our text read this morning. But when God leverages all of his power and his endless goodness, when he comes to orchestrate the picture perfect family, he does it in the most astounding of ways. He does it through the activity of adoption. And it's better than we could have ever imagined, and it's more beautiful than we could have ever planned. And it's this understanding of God's picture-perfect family, through Jesus Christ, both who he is and what he did, and the message of the good news, the gospel, it's this family that comes about through adoption that has astounded God's people for over 2,000 Years And this morning, we're going to get a fresh glimpse of that. So if you haven't already, would you please turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4, beginning here in verse 1, as the Apostle Paul details out this rich and beautiful, picture-perfect family. And what we need to understand right from the get-go is that when God goes about creating and cultivating his picture-perfect family, God doesn't go looking for perfect <laughs> He doesn't go looking for the flawless. He doesn't go looking for the elite. He doesn't go looking for the ones who have their lives put together. Actually, contrary to that, when God goes looking to put his family together, he looks for those who know they aren't perfect. And the Apostle Paul has been reiterating this over and over again as we've been journeying through this little letter that he wrote to the church of Galatia in the first century, this little local expression of God's global family. And what we saw kind of in the history of the church or the history of, of, of the world is that God entrusted Israel with the law. But the law was anything but kind of your 10 commands, your 10 steps to somehow fit into God's family. Because when you compared your family, when you compared your life up against God's moral law, you never measured up to God's perfect standard for his family. Simultaneously, when you started looking at the civil and the ceremonial requirements that God has for Israel that set her apart from the other nations, we come to discover and we've seen over the past couple of weeks that those boundary markers no longer to define ultimately what God's family looks like. It's much messier than that and yet much more beautiful. And in these first three verses, Paul does a bit of review of reminding us of where we were before God broke in and invited us into his family. He gives us two illustrations. 
in verses 1 through 3. First, he kind of paints the picture of a trust fund kid. Um, let's just say his dad's Bill Gates, right? Um, and he's got it made. He's got this extremely rich inheritance. There's only one problem. He can't touch any of it. He has been entrusted with a trustee who oversees all of this inheritance. And this heir, although he has this grand inheritance, is no better than a slave, the Apostle Paul says. Because the trustee has all the power as to what he can or cannot spend or have access to in this inheritance. That's who we are. Powerless. Unable to tap into the rich promises that God has promised to the world before God broke in to our world. The second illustration he gives us is as if we were like children. Children who actually don't have the cognitive ability to think about the world and its richness beyond the basic elementary principles that make up the world. We can never cognitively begin to imagine the big picture of what God is doing in the world and what God has provided in his world and what God is doing in it through us. This is what we're like before God breaks in and invites us into his rich family. Either an, a trust fund kid who has actually great inheritance but has access to none of it or a child who cannot just see the world beyond just like these basic elementary rudimentary framings. Who we are when God finds us as someone with nothing to offer but our immaturity, our needs, our pain, and our powerlessness. That's who God finds. That's who God chases. And when you begin to detail out, okay, so remember, this is a church made up of Jews and Gentiles. We've been talking about the early dynamics of this early church early on. And what we see is each of these illustrations capture each of these two dynamics in the community. The Jews were entrusted with the law. And the law was like a guardian, a manager, a trustee. And they were promised all this great inheritance. But the law continued to keep them from that inheritance. And they were so enslaved or imprisoned to sin because of the law. And the Gentiles were engaged in pagan idolatries and all these ideologies in the world that at best gave them only part of the picture or at worst completely left the picture askew as to how God is working in the world. In both situations, we find an impersonal framework where we as individuals, regardless of what camp we find ourselves, are trying to prove we are worthwhile in God's family. And what, in any system, any system where you're trying to prove that you deserve to be a part of a family, what does that cultivate? What does it produce? It produces shame. It produces guilt. It produces misunderstanding, all of which undercut intimacy and push us further from God rather than invite us in. And this is where God finds us. When God's making his family, he doesn't go chasing after the perfect, the ones who've got their lives all together, because every single person needs to be adopted if they're going to be a part of God's family, whether Jew or Gentile. And praise God, he doesn't let us stay there. And we find this hard turn when you get to verse 4 in Galatians chapter 4. So look with me here, this hard turn. But when the fullness of time had come, God. So what we see right here in the midst of all this, when we feel powerless, when we feel immature, when we feel like we can't navigate the world, God butts into our lives at just the right time, at the fullness of history. He's been orchestrating all the movements of history, weaving together this brilliant tapestry And what does he do? 
he brings about a timely scandal into his family. Because what we see, what God does at this right time within history, the rest of the world mocks. Muslims find this absolutely horrendous. Orthodox Jews find this totally ridiculous. And the world thinks we're fools. What is it that God does that is so unique at this particular point in time in history, right when it's at the right time, when God breaks in and butts into history? Here it is. Look again at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We might receive adoption. Do you see the picture that God's painting here? Pick back up on that first illustration. We talked about the heir who has a trustee and he has no access to the inheritance except for what the trustee says he can or cannot do until the right time. This is common in a trust. There's a particular point when they reach adulthood where they now have full access to all the promises. And what God is saying is that time is now. He has sent the Son at the fullness of time so that the richness of all the inheritance might be lavished upon you. And what is it, that critical turning point that has now unlocked the inheritance of God's promises? He sends His Son. This unique, dynamic moment in history where God the Father and God the Son are utterly unified to take a proactive step of love, orchestrating all of history, all the movements of every experience so that, what do we see there in verse 5? So that we might receive adoption. God sins, he orchestrates all of history and he sends his one and only son, sends him to die on the cross to do what? To redeem. Isn't that what the text says? Not to just show us how to live into the law, but to redeem us from the law, those who are under the law. And to now purchase for us our adoption that we might receive it. All of this so that we might receive adoption, that we might be a part of God's picture-perfect family. See, God doesn't go looking for perfect. God spent everything to make slaves family. Every single one of us, that's where we start. And he says, I want to make you mine, my child. And listen, there's a, adoption is rife with different motivations. But what we see right here at the center of God's heart, the reason God goes about all of this to make this family and to invite us to be a part of it is surplus. A surplus of love, a surplus of resources, a surplus of grace that not even the, the, the whole needs of the world could ever exhaust. That's at the center of all of this. But what kind of kids are we when we're adopted? Isn't that a question? I mean, is this a Cinderella story in that we're adopted by our stepmom, locked in the attic and forced to clean the house? Some of you are like, Where's that? why is that important? Oh, I've got a four-year-old daughter. I know these things. No, we're not. This is not the Cinderella story where we're just adopted and now relegated to our own department to do the dirty work. No, 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 no. When we look at verse 4 and 5, read again. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, became human, born under the law, 
to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, Paul consistently is calling us sons, all of us, which as a 21st century reader, you may be thinking, is Paul misogynistic? What about the daughters here? What's going on? What you need to understand is he's evoking this, this image of sonship to highlight status, not gender. Now, in the first century, the both were intertwined, okay? To, to, to receive the inheritance, you needed to be a male. In the first century, gender and status were intertwined. But here he's evoking the metaphor to highlight our status. And you see that God now democratizes the inheritance for all of his kids. We see this, go back up to verse 26 through 28 of chapter 3. Listen to what Paul writes. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. You all are. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is what? Neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is how we can be clear. He's emphasizing the status of sonship. How every time you read the word son kind of in this flow, I want you to think favorite. Because that's what he's saying. He's saying that you are actually the promised heir, the one whom when the will is read and the inheritance is finally laid out, you are promised the bulk. And what he's saying is now all of God's children come with this great inheritance of sonship and all the great rewards that come with that and the status and the privilege and the legal positioning to say, that is mine because God has promised it to me. an unbelievable, radical idea in the first century and still in the 21st century, that that is what God is doing, that he spent everything to make slaves family, and not just any family, but the highest of status, his favorites, that they might have the full and rich inheritance, no matter your status from the rest of the world's perspective. And so I want to ask this question. I'm not good at complex questions. I'm better at simple questions. Um, but I hope it's not simplistic. I want you to think about this. Do you see yourself as a child of God first? Do you see yourself as a child of God first? Now, what I mean by that is, look, we're given a lot of different labels in society. Um, you know, I've talked with, I talk with my wife, Allie, about this regularly. I mean, often she is demarcated as a mother solely, but she's also a brilliant photographer with her own photography business. She's also a brilliant leader. And as a mother, it's often like, okay, when I think of my identity as a mom, my job is to help care for this, take care of that, nurture this, and, and how she's framing her vocation as now being a mom with two and a third on the way but what we see here in the text is that before you ever see yourself as anything else, do you see yourself as a child who's receiving love, that receives unconditional love from your heavenly father who's seeking to nurture you and to care for you? Your primary identity is that of a child of God first. If you're a father, do you realize that your first identity is that of a son? Son of God, if you're a husband, it's first as a son. If you're a wife, it's first as a daughter. If you're single, you're not alone. You're a part of a rich family, a child of God made up of children of God from diverse backgrounds and statuses into a rich and complex and beautiful, picture-perfect family. 
do you see yourself as a child of God first? Interestingly enough, our mission statement at its heart begins with, we desire to be a caring family. That's because who, that's who we are. That's not just a, a good idea. It's a gospel embedded idea that first and foremost, we are children of God and we look towards one another as brothers and sisters, heirs according to the promise. And God takes this really seriously. And so do we. And, and listen, God's family isn't just for show. Okay, it's not like God needed a diverse portfolio to present to the world and to prove that he was better than any other God because he has the, this diverse portfolio. He's not trying to convince everybody that heaven's a really great place that has a spot just for you, so go ahead and apply. No, what God wants is, and God is communicating is that he wants you to be a part of his family because he wants you. Isn't that fascinating? God's overblowing, uh, over, overabundant surplus of love towards us. That's at the heart of why he's doing all of this. And God doesn't want any one of his children to ever doubt that they are indeed one of his children. And so he offers us something truly astounding. And now with this broader backdrop, we begin to understand the robust nature of verse 6. Look at me. Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And because you are sons, remember favorite, heirs, full-blown, you get all the inheritance, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. He sends the spirit into the deepest recesses of who we are, in places that we don't even care to venture. The heart is the very center of the human being, the metaphor capturing the very core of your essence, where we often hide our most secret idols, where we most keep our hidden anxieties, where those doubts and those fears go to reside and we try to keep them in the dark. But instead, when the fullness of God comes to dwell in us by the Spirit of God, He cries. This is an exclamation of earnestness that God is your Father and He won't leave you. And it reverberates all the insecurities and the deepest recesses of who we are, that we're loved and that God is our Father and we are His child. And what we find here in Christianity is one of the most astounding realities, and that is fatherhood is not merely an illustration, it is a reality. It's not just an interesting way to try to capture what God is doing. God is your father when Jesus is your savior. And that's a challenge to every broken experience you've had with fathers in the background because we say that's what a true father looks like. And it then becomes a challenge to every father going forward as to that is the goal to be like is the true father of all of his children in perfect love and harmony such that he would even sacrifice his greatest gift that he might have us as his children. And when you think about that, when you have this security as God your father, you're able to face anything that life throws at you. And so this time tomorrow, when you're going about work, you're engaging in a happy hour, you're hanging out with friends or talking with family, 
when you begin to doubt that you are a child of God, when Satan begins to tempt you, tempt you to despair, when you feel like you failed too much and you feel like you're unlovable and you begin to think all of these really dark doubts or brokenness or hurt and, and all of these things start breaking into your mind, I want you to hear what Paul is trying to remind us of this morning. What God is telling us through his word is that you need to listen to the Spirit whom you've been entrusted when you embrace Jesus. You need to listen to the Spirit. Because in his heartfelt cry, we find one word that can silence every lie that creeps up in the dark recesses of our hearts. And I just want to highlight two of the most common lies. Here's the first one. One of the most common lies over the millennia of the church. The lie that we often tell ourselves is that I don't fit. When you look at God's picture-perfect family, you start looking at that picture per- and you say, I don't fit there. I can't fit there. And it usually comes out this way. You begin to think, well, everybody has fill in the blank but me. Everybody seems like they're getting married but me. Everybody seems like they're getting their college education but me. Everybody seems like they're getting their finances together but me. Everybody seems to look like this. Everybody has... Th- Whatever it is, fill in the blank, and then you say, but me. And you start to feel like, I don't fit, I can't fit into this family. And God's picture-perfect ideal. And what's so fascinating is that we have to, and we find the secret to answering and combating that lie by listening to the one word of the Spirit. Now, some of you are saying, okay, Gabe, I'm looking in my text, and the Spirit's actually saying two words. No, he's not. He's actually saying one word in two different languages. Have you noticed that? So it's, it's first Abba. It's not translated into English. This is Aramaic for father. And Hapater is the Greek for father. And this is so crucial because when the Spirit comes to dwell within us, he's bilingual. <laughs> Have you noticed this? And this is so crucial when you think about the first century church dynamic where Jews and Gentiles were at odds, where they each were trying to make or better or one-up the other as to who is really the first-class citizen. Oh, if you're going to really be, you know, the best of the best in God's kingdom, you've got to be fully Jewish. Well, if I, you know, if you're going to be a Gentile, that's what it means because you're truly embracing by faith. And what we find is in this greatly divided community of faith, as they're trying to define what it ultimately means to be a part of God's family, when the Spirit of God comes to dwell within us, he's bilingual. And he captures the very culture, the essence. Because language is cultural, isn't it? It's a cultural product as we seek to navigate and understand the world around us. When the Spirit comes to dwell within us in that moment, he resonates with who we are and creates space for the other. Do you see that? How powerful this is? And this has two implications. One, when you are wrestling with whether or not you fit in God's family, God's spirit comes and says, oh, just the way you are. Come to my family. Call me father in whatever language works. (laughs) But that's, I'm your father just as much as I'm their father. I'm your father. So first we find a resonance that God embraces us for who we are, even in our cultural situatedness. But then secondly, in the core of who we are, God begins to cultivate a space for the other. Because he doesn't just speak our language, he speaks the language of the other. Do you see this? 
That means inside the Jewish person who's saying that they're better than the Greek, inside, when the Spirit of God comes to dwell in them, the Spirit is both speaking Aramaic and Greek. So, oh, there's a little bit of Greek in me. What's going on? If you're Greek and you start to feel, and you're, you're Gentile and you start to feel like you're superior to the Jews, inside of you, crying from the depths of you, is both a resonance, yes, that he's speaking Greek, but then simultaneously he's speaking Aramaic, a language spoken at home often in the Jewish community. It's both a resonance with who you are, where you are, and simultaneously a cultivation, even in the depths of who we are, to embrace the other because God wants everyone to know that they fit in his family if they just embrace Jesus. You don't have to become something else. You just have to embrace the one and true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And no other religion makes this claim. Do you know this? Like in Islam... You have to learn Arabic if you really want to know Allah in his core. If you want to truly submit and obey him, you've got to learn Arabic. In, in Buddhism, what the end goal of Buddhism is a static oneness which actually eradicates all diversity whatsoever. Everything becomes one, the same singular. Only in the Christian faith do we find that when God sends the fullness to come and dwell within the depths of who we are, he's diverse. And he honors us where we are and cultivates space for the other that he might make a picture-perfect family that defies the odds. That's who God is. That's what he's doing in his family. That's what he's doing in his church. And you need to believe the lie or believe the cries of the Spirit and not the lies of the heart. So listen to the Spirit. Don't believe that you don't fit here because it's not true. Second most common lie we believe and it's usually we begin to believe this in the midst of failure or in the midst of pain is that I'm not legit so I don't fit or I'm not legit I love rhyming there it is but it's in those moments where you failed over and over and over again and you start to think oh, you know God can never love me still I've just dropped the ball too many man I keep wrestling with these doubts I, I can't be a legitimate member of God's family. I, I, I still wrestle with so much fear. I, I can't. And listen, theologian and pastor Tim Keller brilliantly says, the one thing Satan does not want is that God's words, you are my beloved child, become the fuel of your life and heart. Don't let the lies of the evil one, don't let your own insecurity, don't let your own doubts steal the truth God loves you endlessly. And remember how you entered this family because that'll give you confidence in how you stay in this family. Remember, you didn't earn your way into this family. You didn't prove to God that you were good enough. So you can't get out by proving that you're bad enough. You can't, you, you know, God's not going to say, all right, that's it. I thought you were, I knew you were rough, but I didn't know you were that rough. No, God's never going to say that. That's not the way God works. God doesn't go looking for perfect. And he's not going to kick you out for not being perfect. Instead, we see that God chases us in our mess and says, embrace Jesus, tell Jesus you're his, that you trust him, and I'll be with you every step of the way. And when you doubt it, the spirit within your spirit will resonate and shout out in every nook and cranny of your heart, Father, to remind you that you aren't alone that you are indeed God's child, first and foremost, above every other label this world can offer. 
You see, God is at the hard work of redefining his picture-perfect family in a world where there are so many pictures askew. And every now and then, every now and then, there's even a picture that we get a glimpse of that here on earth. And so this morning, I'm going to share a story. Actually, there's some, there's some family members of mine in a blended and splendid family that I'm a part of. They're stepbrother and stepsister. And I think they give me a, a brilliant illustration of God's heart for the world, a brilliant illustration of the kind of family that God's making, and I hope that it inspires us all. Let's watch together. Growing up, I always just wanted to be a mom. I, I, I couldn't wait to get married someday, and I had a picture of, well, I wanted 10 kids. And I just, that was my desire, my heart's desire. I wasn't quite at 10 kids. <laughs> my picture was probably more just along the lines of my family. And uh, yeah, fitting that picture-perfect description that I think, I think we all want. I just finished up school. We had been married for almost a year, and we decided to start trying. A few months go by, then six months go by, and then a year goes by, and then we realized that maybe we should see what's going on. So that began a long journey in several years, five to be exact, of um, just dealing with infertility and God growing us and teaching us through, through his plan for our family that it wasn't gonna start right away like everybody else's did. So growing up, I had always thought that adoption would be a really neat thing, but I think it took the Lord closing my womb to really open my heart to the idea of adoption. You know, we started talking about it and praying about it, and um, God started really working in our hearts and opening the doors for us to, to move in that direction. She came home and said, I think we need to get licensed for adoption and go to the, at least go to these classes. So I'm like, okay, we can do that. I'll at least go to the classes. And our, our original plan was we would go to overseas and we decided on going to Ukraine. It seemed like there was a lot of need there. With the waiting periods and everything, it seemed like a great situation for us. And so that's what we originally decided on was to go overseas, go to Ukraine. And, and adopt from there. And the need was so great. It would be two or three weeks we'd be gone and then we'd be back with our baby. But when we got there, they had a lot of issues with the program um, for adoption in Ukraine. And after being there for seven really, really, really long weeks, um, God sent us home without a baby. I think it's one of those things where you have to set aside the picture that you built up in your mind of mm -hmm. what you thought was gonna happen or how you thought things were going to be and what things would look like and reinserting the blank canvas for God mm -hmm. to put the picture on there for you, what it was gonna look like. And finding contentment in that, yeah. and, and, and joy in that, and knowing that all we needed really was Him. It didn't take being a parent, it didn't take being a mom, it was just Him. When we got back from Ukraine, one of the caseworkers that we knew, um, she then told us, I've got a little boy who really needs a good family. It was, weeks after we had gotten home and within within days they put our name into the red file and we were chosen so just 15 minutes down the road was our oldest child and within days we were able to meet him and just within weeks he was home so two years after we brought Wes home thought we would try biologically to have children and God gave us our twins um, they were born prematurely, and shortly after they were born, we were made aware that one of our little ones had Down syndrome. 
through having Wyatt, who has Down syndrome, God really opened our eyes and our hearts to a different aspect of raising kids and the privilege of having a child with special needs. Like it just was such a blessing. It was a blessing we did not expect. Um, we were fearful and and scared, and and God just um, really opened our eyes to the beauty of the individual that He created and a whole community of people that um, didn't look like everyone else. Through uh, opening our eyes through Wyatt to special needs, he then opened our hearts to Trinity. She was undiagnosed at the time, so we again had our plan of we were willing to accept certain conditions, but we weren't willing to, to accept others. And God just kind of told us, no, you're not going to know those things. Right. I'm not going to tell you those things. Really? you got to make a decision based on faith. So after wrestling with, with that decision, he just brought us to complete peace and joy in that. And we took her home just a few months later. For me, this whole process has been one of God making himself visible, really showing himself to us. I mean, I've always known he's there. Mm -hmm. But it's something altogether different to, to actually experience His presence. And for me, it was the invisible hand of God made visible through the whole process. It's almost as if you could physically see Him there moving, working, and in even the parts that weren't the happiest parts, He was there moving and working. And coming to that comprehension um, is life-changing because you really understand who God is in those moments. I'm just thankful that God's plan um, was different than ours. I'm thankful that that picture that we had originally in our minds of what our family needed to be is completely different than what God had in mind. No matter how many times I see that video, I just, I'm reminded in the midst of that, of what a beautiful illustration of God's heart for us. Where he meets us where we're at, and then he calls us his own. Where he pursues us and chases us. And I love how my sister Carrie says, I'm so glad that God's plan was different than mine. And then when I think about the church and the brothers and sisters that are seated in this room, I can't help but say I'm so glad that God's plan for his picture-perfect family was so much different than I could have imagined because he's so much better. And, and, it's, and what's so astounding to me, what was so different even from the Rogers family and the way God is cultivating his picture-perfect family in the church is that the Rogers family had to come to this discovery over time. In many ways, it started off as a plan B. But for you and for me, what you need to understand is that God envisioned us from the get-go. He had you in mind. He had me in mind. The church has always been God's plan A. This family has always been a part of what God has been orchestrating history for, to make this beautiful and robust family. And when you get to Revelation, you find brothers and sisters, this diverse, adopted family from every tribe and every tongue, still with distinction into eternity, celebrating our one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is always what God has been doing. God so, so much 
calls you his child if you've embraced Jesus. Do you see yourself as God's child first? He does. Do you, and have you received your adoption in Jesus? He's ready to give it. Do you hear the Spirit? Are you listening to the Spirit as He's resonating within you the very truth of your sonship? Don't believe the lies that so easily come that I don't fit or I'm not legit. Don't believe them. Instead, listen to the cries of the Spirit because, listen, our Heavenly Father is. He's listened to the cries of the Spirit that He's placed within those who are His. Will you listen to them as well? Let's pray. God, I know um, any sort of idea of a picture-perfect family, any sort of framing around family comes with baggage, pain, hurt. And then we hear of your amazing grace that you would, you would give everything, your own son, to now make a way possible to adopt so many sons and daughters that you would make this rich and beautiful, picture-perfect family that's more beautiful than we could have ever planned. So God, may we in our doubts listen to your spirit. May we in our fears and our questions, and when those lies creep up loud, may we listen to the spirit. And God, if there are those here who yet to, are yet to know you and yet to embrace, oh, being adopted into your family, may your spirit woo them. May they see the great love you offer, no strings attached, but just because out of the overflow of your good heart towards us, such that you would send your son to die for us. Give us the courage to receive you all the more, to lean into you and trust you all the more, all by the power of your spirit. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.